Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm awfully glad. Once again, we are assembling at least two Jews and a Gentile. I want you to uh, know that you can always text your questions over. We'll put them in a mailbag and answer them all at once. 877-933-2484. My power panel remains the same from uh, our last time we gathered. Uh, Trevor Rubenstein, Aaron Broughton, Matt Fry, and Tom Berkowitz. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks, Bill. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for so having me. So here's a question I have. Uh, so if I want to become a Christian and I'm Jewish, and if I become a Christian, am I no longer Jewish? That's a good question. I, I, I think this is a common objection that I thought that we should talk about as we think about, okay, uh, if you're talking to a Jewish person who is not yet a follower of Jesus, uh, that is something that comes up. Like, am I relinquishing my Judaism in order to... Uh, in order to follow Jesus, and I think the qu- I think the, the quick answer to that is only if you think that following Israel's Messiah is relinquishing your Judaism, right? I, I think there's something to be had there. But when we look at the scriptures through and through, what we see is that number one, they're pointing to Yeshua, they're pointing to Jesus, and there is no conception in the Bible, you know, Hebrew Bible or in the Greek New Testament, uh, that to become a follower of Jesus is to get rid of that part of yourself. That would be like somebody coming to me and saying like, uh, when you become a Christian, do you cease to be Polish? Yeah. Well, and let, let me actually, before we get too theological, let me give a joke that kind of expresses it. <laughs> yeah. right? So, uh, so did there, you get this run by, by Bill first? Uh, well, uh, you know, <laughs> you should, like I, things cleared. I, I stole it from somebody else. <laughs> so he can blame them. But, uh, but so there is a Jewish man that lives next door to a Catholic man. And this is at a time <laughs> to where the, uh, ca- where the Catholic church is not eating, uh, is not eating, um, meat. Uh, specifically uh, beef on Fridays, right? And uh, and the, every Friday evening, the uh, the Jewish man is grilling up a steak, and uh, and the Catholic man, of course, cannot eat the steak, but yet he smells it, and you know, a little frustrated by that, but uh, convicted in his faith, and uh, and so he he actually. He sees. Uh, he he starts speaking to the Jewish man, his Jewish neighbor, about uh, becoming a Catholic, and the Jewish man becomes interested and wants to learn more. And so the Catholic man introduces him to his priest, and then the, eventually the Jewish man determines he wants to convert to Catholicism. And so the priest uh, puts water on his head in the formal baptism uh, process that a Catholic church uh, individual would go through, and he tells him that you are not, you're not Jewish, you're now Catholic, and. So next Friday comes and the Catholic man spells, smells steak again. And so he's a little frustrated with this, right? And so he goes and he talks to the Jewish man and he tells him, he said, uh, wait a second. He said, you're Catholic now and you can't have steak on Fridays. And the Jewish man said, well, it's not steak, it's fish. And he said, well, what do you mean? It's not steak, it's fish. I can, I can see it. it. It looks like a steak. It smells like a steak. I know this. And, and the Jewish man said, no, I see how you do this. I put water on it. And I said, you're no longer a steak, you're a fish. <laughs> um, but the, but, but the context to what, what Matt said is, uh, 
you know, if it, it, Judaism is also a nationality, an identity through yeah. through history, and uh, and so it would be like saying that if you're Swedish and you come to believe in Jesus, are you still Swedish? Of course you are, and so in the same context. Let me tell you a true would. story. Yeah. I was making a business call with an Israeli, and the person knew us, the business owner, and he said he knew I was a Jew, believed in Jesus. So he said, you're Jewish and you believe in Jesus. What does that make you? And the Israeli guy was getting frustrated. He said, can a leper change his spots? He's a Jew. Let's do business. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm sorry. Now we can return to theology. No, no. You know, but what really is interesting, though, is one of the early problems was that the Judaizers wanted to make Christians get uh, or Gentiles get circumcised. And Paul argued with that hard and long. Now we're a couple thousand years later, and there's a lot of Christians, and through history of the church, one of Jews to prove they're a Christian to eat ham, to eat pork, or to give up their heritage. So we've kind of come full circle on that. Yeah, I think the scriptures are really clear that the distinctions between Jews and non-Jews or Jews in the biblical term we might say is Gentiles exist and they're good and they're okay. And like that, that how, that's how God orchestrated it. In fact, when we look at Romans 11, like we see that the salvation of Jews and non-Jews is kind of woven together in this dance, as I, I would call it, right, where, where Israel ends up rejecting the gospel, and so the gospel goes to the nations, so the nations trust in Jesus, and it's supposed to do what? To provoke Israel back to Messiah, right? These are things that go together. If those distinctions don't exist, then what is that dance in the first place? Yeah, and and as Judaism became defined, uh, depending on who defined it, they would try to make it an exclusivity club and, and would yeah. want people to be under a certain system in order to uh, accept them. Otherwise, it would be kind of uh, pressuring them not to lose that. But something interesting i i bet you that this is true for for tom and i and i think actually for matt also is uh is most jewish people who come to believe in jesus uh actually become much more jewish after they believe in jesus Uh, those uh, the the elements that uh that the jewish people see as really living out their jewish faith becomes much more prominent in us Uh, i i wasn't adamant about celebrating the holidays after my bar mitzvah until after i became a a follower in jesus yeah well that's true with me yeah no i think that's totally true and and i think the one of the things that we talked about in the last segment that's important here as we navigate this is the religious component to Judaism and the ethnic component or the people group component to to being a Jew or Jewish, a Jewish person, right? A Jewish individual or family or whatever. And I, I think that it's important to say like, yes, in coming to Jesus, there are components of rabbinic Judaism that you will no longer view as authoritative, that you might reject as being inconsistent with the revealed word of God, right? And I think that that's good and that's right because God is our, he is our authority, right? The scriptures are our authority. But but in the sense of relinquishing who I am on an identity level, you know, if we're going to use Paul's language, do I, do I cease to be Jewish because I'm a follower of Jesus? May it never be, right? By no means. Right. I think, yeah, I, th- I think one thing on our ministering in Israel with amongst Israelis and all that, when you present the gospel, and, and sometimes they have that aha moment, like, I know what you're saying is true. I know, okay, everything matches up who Jesus is. Yeah. You know, there. and one thing I will say that most Jewish people that I have ministered to with uh, have come to, to faith through their own study of Scripture. Yeah. 
and that's such a get the just simply get exposed to the word of God. What a blessing that is. But I think the the litmus test is okay. It's not so much you know maybe in our American Christian culture you know if I don't get saved I'm going to go to hell type of thing. There's that element, but it's really what's my mom going to say? Yeah. What's my dad going to say? Yeah. I have a, yes. a friend. His name is Avi. He lives in Modi'in, the same area where the Maccabee story mm-hmm. came from, Hanukkah story came from. And uh, he told me, he says, you know, I'm kind of like a Nicodemus. I, I don't really tell anyone that I really believe in Jesus. So I'm like, okay, I, I had only met him for a couple of days. So I kind of asked him, so, well, have you told your family? And I said, well, yeah, I finally told my sister. I said, well, how did she respond? She said, well, she was like, be honest with you, she was like really laid back about it. It's like, well, if it makes you happy type of thing, but don't tell mom. <laughs> you know, that was, his, <laughs> that was her answer. That was uh, really identical to my father when I told him, and he said, don't tell his mother, was his immediate response. Uh, and uh, they were just happy that I was no longer a, a, a drugged-out uh, problem child at that moment, but don't tell the rest of the family. So you're absolutely right, because it, it is seen as such an anathema. And Jewish people, actually, and, and all of us, I think, included, we really give something up when you come to faith. It, it requires a deep commitment, because often uh, you there is a sacrifice that sometimes comes out of that. And so it's not something we do lightly. Right. They certainly don't throw you a party. When I became a believer, I went and grabbed the Bible, the same one I use, and I brought it to my brothers who are 19 months younger. So I, they're twins. So I went to the first twin, really, I thought he would be the easiest. Well, he got so angry, I had to wipe the spit off my face. And then I went to his twin, and he slams his fist on the table. Tommy, I hate Christians. Do you hear me? I hate them. Don't ever bring this up. So then I was going to reach out to my aunt, and I hired somebody from Good News for Israel to go talk to her. (laughs) (laughs) Can I ask you a question, Tom? What? Your brother, right? The one who says, I hate Christians. Mm -hmm. I don't think he walks around, like in his everyday life, thinking he hates people that are Christians. You know, I, I would I would assume not. I'm assuming he doesn't do that. It seems to be w- that Jesus was actually the stumbling block, not the Christian. Would you say that's true or no? No, I don't think that's true at all. Really? I think what he he got tired of experience anti-Semitism. He got yeah. tired of fighting them. He sure. got tired of of being around. Oh, you Jewed him down, or mm. that's what they. Interesting. I mean, yeah. Jesus. That would they disagreed with Jesus? Sure. Because of the church, the witness of the church. Mm. And that's what happens today. Yeah. The church is called to be unified in love. And we're, and there's no more powerful witness is when Jews and Gentiles could worship the Messiah together in love. Amen. But the church's history is they've given them the back of their hands. Yeah. Now, we lived outside the Jewish community, so we experienced that more than if you lived in an all-Jewish community. Mm-hmm. I mean, my friend Marty Getz, he lived in almost 90% Jewish area, and the school was 90%. He didn't experience it. But you get where that's not the case, where you're maybe three, four out of 400. That is the case. So a question I have for you guys is uh, talk a little bit about anti-Semitism within Christianity. Obviously, you guys have experienced at least some level of that, I would assume. With that in mind, how much do you think is that a deterrent from a Jewish person coming to coming to faith in Jesus? Uh, partial, right? Um, doesn't have to be the only reason. Uh, and uh, Tom's 
Tom's experience very clear with that, uh, where that would have been a major stumbling block in how he was raised. I, I really didn't experience anti-Semitism until after I became a believer, hmm. and even hmm. more so in recent years, in any in any sizable really? way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was one of two Jewish kids in my high school, and uh, and they did they they called me the Jew because I was the one, but they did it lovingly. Actually, I was embraced and really really uh, really brought in, but. Uh, um, but but that being all that being said, um, I still hated Christians, mm-hmm. and uh, and so to Matt's point, the first time I met a Christian, I hated them, and I didn't have a context for it. So for me, it was spiritual. Yeah. I didn't have the experience to justify it. Mm-hmm. So so that that can be a component also. Mm-hmm. I think. Right. Mm-hmm. I think one factor to to think about when we're doing you know when we're witnessing to our Jewish friends is that sometimes there's a misconception around this religious and ethnic thing where there's kind of the assumption that to be uh, non-Jewish or to just be a Gentile means you automatically associate as a Christian. And so there, there gets to be this kind of convoluting dynamic where, okay, if I don't like uh, this Gentile person, I must hate Christians or something along those lines. And it's like, no, actually th- there's a distinction there as there is with Jew or Gentile that you need to be born again. Right. So good, gentlemen. Thank you so much. We're going to take a little break. You are listening to at least two Jews and a Gentile. Brand new segment. We just started uh, this month. So we're glad to have the panel back. We have Trevor, Aaron, Matt, and Tom. Questions are always welcome. We'll put them in a mailbag and answer them all at once. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. I'm back with at least two Jews and a Gentile. I've got Trevor, Aaron, Matt, and Tom. And we are, uh, just before the break, we were chatting about if you're Jewish and you become a Christian, are you still Jewish? Now let me flip the question around. If I'm a Gentile and I become a follower of Jesus, can I become Jewish? (laughs) Well, I'll start out with the Gentile. Okay. (laughs) Um, like I said, I've been studying Judaism since I was 13 and just different aspects and the background of the scriptures, you know, reading the Bible through Jewish eyes. So mm-hmm. when I was in college, I was in Green Bay and visiting with a conservative rabbi of a conservative synagogue. And uh, we spent oh, probably nearly two hours together. We sat in his office at the synagogue, showed me around. It was actually we had a really good conversation. But he kind of said towards over half the way of the uh, the uh, meeting, he said, uh, "Aaron, you've you've kind of done a circle around the topic of you know of, of everything here. Now you need to come in, hmm. come in the circle." And uh, so there's there is there are people Gentiles who say, "I choose to I want to become a uh, a convert to Judaism." Yeah. But as you guys know, that especially in Orthodox Judaism, it, you get a lot of pushback if you want to do that. They're, a lot of it, they're testing you out, go try something else, you know, go figure something else out. So it's not really welcome per se, but there are Gentiles that do become Jewish, re, meaning rabbinical Judaism, mm-hmm. yeah. keeping the traditions and all that. Yeah. And so one thing that, of course, if you are a follower of, of Jesus Christ, that will come up when a Jewish person will m- maybe make Aliyah to Israel, they, they become an immigrant there. One of the questions that sometimes is brought up, actually vast majority of the time is, what do you think about Jesus or the church and things like that? And sometimes that's a deterrent or sometimes you get a no of becoming an immigrant. Even though you're full Jewish, perhaps, if you believe in Jesus, you might get a no. Yeah. So how do we deal with that? So, guys, I'm Gentile. 
can I become Jewish? <laughs> and, and, and I guess that means on what, uh, depends on what you mean. So, so uh, in Acts chapter 2, um, when we have the, um, the story of what was occurring during Pentecost, right? In verse 10, it talks about who were there. It says visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. So, so there were converts to yeah. Judaism that we read about in Scripture. Actually, even in the, uh, even in the book of Esther, at the end of the book, it actually states that many of the people uh, became Jews. So they, they convert to yeah. Judaism, which really uh, I, would, I would attest to um, determining that they're going to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they're going to submit themselves to the Mosaic Covenant. Um, this, was, this is something that definitely can happen, or at least historically. And, uh, and so when, so yes, of course, in that context, the, the issue then becomes that if a Gentile comes to believe in Jesus, then are they Jewish? And, uh, and part of that, I think that we have to look at Acts chapter 15, where there was a recognition that Gentiles were receiving the Holy Spirit um, apart from going through a formal conversion process. And the Holy yeah. Spirit was clear indication that God had accepted and received these people. And so their determination was that, no, they did not have to become Jewish in order to be a follower of Jesus. So there, we see this distinction, and uh, I guess I could go on, but I want to give time for others. I always would like to know what is the motivation behind them wanting to become Jewish. Yeah. There's a lot of people that romanticize it or they want to follow the Torah. And here's what I found, with, especially with people who want to be Torah observant. Basically, they're mostly Gentiles. First, it's stimulation. This is stimulating to me. Then it becomes fascinated. I'm fascinated with all the rabbinic thoughts and mm -hmm. their their diving into scriptures then they come fixated so now they're fixated on on Judaism rather than Jesus then they that's a good point then it gets complicated because oh boy is it Tom. who who <laughs> do i what am i anyway maybe i'm not a uh, no longer a, a gentile i am jewish then they suffocates them they lose their faith that's why I, I'm really leery of that. Mm -hmm. So the question is really, what's the end goal? What's the motivation? Yeah. Yeah. What's the context? Exactly. Yeah. So I think you can, as you say, and as I think we've affirmed, that you could, as a Gentile, convert to Judaism. You're not taking on a new ethnic identity, though, right? And I think that there's implications to how we navigate all of this, I think, with regard to Torah observance. And we've talked about this idea of, of grafting. I don't know if we should get into that topic yet, but is there anything anyone else wants to say about the conversion component? Well, so uh, we're and, and we're dealing with a couple things, right? So just to clarify, um, uh, and and one one of which is is yes, converting to Judaism is while it's possible that is not the Christian movement. That is not what's happening within Christianity. So so in in stating that it is possible for somebody to convert to Judaism, Judaism does not offer eternal life. Only Jesus does. Amen. And uh, and so in, in that that process would would not enable that to occur. So yeah, that's just it it's through putting faith and trust in Jesus alone. I, I just want to mm -hmm. clarify that um as we continue with this conversation. Right. Yeah. And if you're converting to Judaism what that really means is you're walking away from Christianity. 
back in Jesus's day, if proselytes came to convert to Judaism, they would be baptized three times under, I mean, immersed three times. And the third time when they came up out of the waters, they were no longer a Gentile. They were a Jew. That meant they were Mm -hmm. here at allegiance to Yep. Rabbinic Judaism. Yeah. yeah. And uh, in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 3, it, it states very clearly, it says, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised. And this would be a conversion process in the first century. It says that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Yeah. I think one of the things to think through, to I think language and categories is really important for us. And so I think as we sort through that, I mean, this is going to happen all throughout this kind of this thing that we do, this this segment. But I think one of the things to think through is that when we think about Judaism, it happens in movements and it happens in like uh, historic epochs, if you want to think of it like that. So what's going on with Israel in the Hebrew Bible is not modern day Judaism. Right. And what's happening during the time of Jesus is not the same thing going on with Israel. There's continuity, but there's also discontinuity. And so the way that I've talked about it with people is to think about the history of of God's chosen people in three ways. You have number one, you have Israel that's existing uh, in the ancient Near East and and into the, the, the future from there. Then you have what's called Second Temple Judaism, right? This is the time of Jesus, right? This is from the Second Temple all the way up to, up to the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD. But then in response to the destruction of the Second Temple, you have the, the, pretty much the only Jewish group to continue after that is the Pharisees or the, the Hasidim, which is different than you might see think of the, the uh, present uh, Hasidic movement. But, but that develops into Rabbinic Judaism. And so I think as we think about this, Israel is pointing forward to the Messiah, Right. And when we think about Second Temple Judaism, this is the arrival of the Messiah. And then as we think about following up from that, you as Aaron, you were talking about earlier, there are two developing groups, one group of Jews that believe that you can follow Jesus because he is the Messiah of Israel. But then there's what becomes rabbinic Judaism, which inherently rejects Jesus. And so when we think about converting to Judaism, as as, as Trevor said, there's the reality of like, what what are you gaining out of it? You're certainly not gaining eternal life and you're not gaining reconciliation to God that only comes through Jesus. So my wrap-up thing, I'll share about my own testimony. Yeah, yeah. I say to my Israeli friends, Ani goy yeshi levi I am a Gentile with a Jewish heart. Mm-hmm. And it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the promised Messiah that changed my life. Yeah. And that's the person of Yeshua, that's Jesus. Amen. Boy, Aaron, you're my Gentile. I should have vetted you better. <laughs> that, that was impressive. <laughs> oh, all right, all right. So, no, I appreciate uh, what was just discussed, and I would like to take it a little bit further. Um, I want to ask, who is Yeshua, the Messiah, and if he's come, why is there no peace? Mm. Great question. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, that's coming from the Abrahamic covenant, and Jesus did not fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. He guaranteed it on his first coming. He fulfills it on his second coming. That's when the land will be there. That's when all Jews will will believe in Jesus and all the Gentile believers will come. So the first, his first coming was just a guarantee of yeah. our salvation. Yeah, we reap the whole peace and everything at his second coming. Yeah. That's when he fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. 
I think I think as a follow-up to that is a follow-up question. This is the Jewish thing I'm about to do. I'm going to ask you a question to a question. Is what does it take to create peace? That That's a big thing, okay? Mm-hmm. If the Messiah comes, you know, shouldn't there be peace? Well, what does it take to create peace, okay? So, it, it, it you know, there's, there's two things God could do, right? Number one is he could change us, and number two, he could get rid of us. Because the reality is, is we are the ones that oftentimes create the most chaos, that 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 sow the most the most lack of shalom, the most lack of peace. And so, what we find in Messiah is that God is taking the route where He does not have to get rid of us, and He's making atonement for our sins, so that His justice is satisfied. But He can extend mercy to us and seal us with the Holy Spirit, so that we are, uh, as the Scriptures say, uh, the temple of God, the sacred space of God. And it says the Scriptures tell us that the Spirit is making us uh, into the image of Jesus, restoring the image of God in us, and by definition is making us people of peace. So God's route, his program to create peace in the world is with regard to extending mercy to us through the Messiah. So one sense of peace between God and man. Yeah, yep, and then as an overflow of that peace with one another. So but the kind of a deeper question now is what exactly is shalom? What exactly is peace? A lot of people... determine that word on their own terms like peace we just get along sometimes it's like it everything goes my way that's peace <laughs> i mean if we, i mean look at how the even the past few years even in our city here in minneapolis i mean everyone's trying to do that yeah they get their own peace look at the middle east everyone's trying to have their own piece of the peace if you will uh of the process right now israel is trying to normalize some relations with saudi arabia i hope for the sake of the neighborhood it works out but is it really trustworthy peace? Mm. You know, so when we talk about peace and the the promise of peace, what does that look like? What is really the, God's plan? And are we, whether you're Jew or Gentile, are we really missing the picture? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the question, it's actually the, it's the most common objection to Jesus coming out of the Jewish sources. And it stems um, partially from Isaiah chapter two, where it talks about that their weapons will be, uh, will be made into um, tools for farming and things of that nature, right? And uh, and Tom Tom is a hundred percent correct, but they're 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 in that we have a down payment so that we know that he will fulfill things when he returns. Uh, this is this is really the the true answer. But the question the the thing stems from that the only provable evidence that we could have of Jesus being the Messiah, we don't see because there's supposed to be peace on earth, and yet we don't see that. And so the things that you guys are saying that he fulfilled, speaking towards uh, as a Jewish person towards Christians, the objection would look something like, well, we can't see that. But the greatest, actually, interestingly, the, the greatest provable miracle as stated to the promises for what the Messiah was supposed to do is the Messiah was supposed to reveal the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the nations of the world. And only one Jewish man, only one in all of history, has made the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob known to all the nations of the world, and that's only Jesus. Because uh, through Jesus, the gospel has gone from corner to corner, from kingdom to kingdom, all across the world. And now the going from probably one of the most obscure gods in the known world, going back to the first century, to becoming the most well-known God in the world. And that was accomplished through Jesus, clearly a provable miracle. And like Tom said, and we saw the down payment so that we know that the final payment will be made. If I might just share, one of the greatest blessings I had as a believer was to meet and talk with Richard Wormbrandt. Mm-hmm. Richard Wormbrandt uh, started the ministry uh, Tortured for Christ, uh, 
uh, Voice of the Martyrs. And he told me that they, they were in a prison cell, a communist prison cell in Romania. No windows, no nothing. And it was a communal cell. So you had Christians, you had Jews, you had intellectuals, PhDs, the atheists, the agnostics. They're all in there. And he was telling us how you can have peace in the midst of that torture and how you can be a light. And one of his friends, Sam, is a Messianic Jew, a Jew who believed in Jesus. But he sacrificially gave half of his food, which was meager, to other prisoners that needed it more. He would clean their wounds. And he used to be the favorite uh, plaything for the intellectuals and the atheists. And they finally said, Sam, if you can prove to us that God is real, we'll believe. And Sam smiled. He dusted himself up. I mean, he's a skeleton of a man because he's given away a good portion of his food and he's being tortured. And he looked at them and he smiled. And Richard said it was like the whole cell radiated from the glow that he had in each one of those tormentors sat down with tears in their eyes because they had a chance to see what real peace was in the middle of a hellhole. Wow, it's fantastic. You are listening to at least two Jews and a Gentile, a brand new segment. Uh, this is our second episode, our first time we gathered. We all wore name tags, including me, uh, but this time we don't have to because we all know each other and love each other. So if you have a question or a comment, let me know what it is, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Welcome to the show. It's at least two Jews and a Gentile. Uh, gentlemen, we have so much to cover. I don't know uh, how we're going to get this all done because these hours pass so quickly. But um, let me just start off by, before we jump into Romans chapter 11, which is what I want to do next, let me just uh, throw out this statement. and I would like you to respond to it. Uh, people read the scriptures to satisfy their bias. Mm. Sometimes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of presuppositions that people bring to to the scriptures, maybe their own background. Yeah. Maybe a church background or even from a Jewish perspective, you know, what you were brought up with, what you were taught, yeah. or lack thereof. Right. And so sometimes, yeah, you when you come to the Bible, but I think a good interpretation, you re, let the Bible speak for itself. Yeah. Compare scripture to scripture. Uh one thing I always tell our folks at our church is that um do a twenty twenty principle. If you have a question about a verse Read 20 verses before and 20 verses after to look at the, the context. Sometimes you need to go beyond that, but it usually helps in interpreting. So is there a bias? I think there can be, absolutely. But I think let the Holy Spirit show you his truth and uh, go from there. Yeah, it's, it's okay to be wrong as yeah. long as God's right. And I think if you have that heart's attitude as you enter into the Scripture, it's uh, incredibly helpful. Yeah. Right, and don't make a doctrine out of one word or two words. Because biblical Hebrew, 
I used to say it had only 10,000 words, and they were all consonants, no vowels. <laughs> but then a professor here at Northwestern told me I was exaggerating. It was closer to 8,000. So we've got to be careful how we look at that. We get a word, now I'm going to make a doctrine out of it. Yeah, Probably not a good idea. Yeah. yeah. All right. We've got, uh, we don't have a lot of time left, so let's jump into Romans 11. <laughs> Who wants to lead the charge? Yeah, I think uh, the question that came up is uh, what are we grafted into, right, was uh, was really the question regarding Romans 11. Because uh, Romans 9, 10, 11, really the context of each and every one of those chapters is salvation to Israel. We can tell because at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, Paul says he would rather be condemned and have Israel uh, come to salvation. Romans chapter 10 begins with, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for God or to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And then when we get to Romans chapter 11, very clearly he asks, uh, is God done with the Jewish people? He says, certainly not. And he talks about how he is a part of the remnant being a saved person out of Israel. And then we get into this depiction of an olive tree. And uh, and there's unfortunately, I think, some misconceptions sometimes that people come to and some possible uh, destructive directions that it can lead to. I, I don't want to take all the time again, so I'll let you guys continue <laughs> to expound on it. Well, I think some of the question, I guess, comes into, and you guys can feel free to jump in. Yeah, number one, what, what, it, just what is the image, right? When we come across stuff in scripture, and there's some sort of illustration, or there's some sort of image, like what is it, right? Like what, what is it referring to? This happens oftentimes when we're reading something like Revelation, right? Like John's Apocalypse. Like you're, you're reading it, and there are these illustrations that mean things, and the question is, what do they mean? And so when we're looking at Romans 11, the olive tree comes up and this idea of the root and, and these different things. Yes, there is uh, some uh, conception within the Hebrew Bible that the olive tree uh, and Israel uh, are running parallel or are synonymous. But I think when you look at uh, the wider Jewish literature, this idea of the root uh, or the roots oftentimes refers to uh, the patriarchs. So it's not just – it's not Israel Nationally, it is a, a select group of Israel upon which kind of the promises of the covenant promises are, are coming to fruition. We would say that come to fruition in Jesus who brings salvation. So it's these salvation promises. And so when you're reading Romans 11, uh, it talks about two types of branches. It talks about unnatural branches and natural branches. And I would argue to say that the natural branches uh, are those who are, are Jews or, or Israelites, as Paul might say, uh, and the unnatural branches uh, are the uh, Gentiles or non-Jewish people, but both uh, are, are being uh, grafted into something, right? The Jewish community had had been cut off for unbelief, or at least some of them, those that, that reject Jesus, but Paul says that they can be grafted in again. So clearly, if the root, or excuse me, clearly, if the tree is Israel and the branches are Israel, like how is Israel cut off from, it, it gets a little convoluted. I think if we look at the tree as uh, the salvation promise of, of God that comes to fruition in Jesus, we can recognize uh, that through faith, both Jews and Gentiles can be grafted in and, and through unbelief uh, can be cut off. Right. And so I think that is a more accurate way to navigate this. Anyone want to jump in here? Well, I, I don't think Paul, when he was talking about that, that olive bush, there are no branches that are in that olive bush 
that are there naturally. They all came through faith. Right. And that's the, you know, each the us Jews, we had to be regrafted into that olive tree because we weren't part of it until we became believers in Jesus. The Gentiles enter in the same way. Yeah. And then and then so what they're grafted into becomes important, because if what they're grafted into is Israel, this this is partially where uh, the concept of replacement theology comes from, is mm-hmm. that uh, then is then is, if Israel is salvation, uh, meaning uh, national Israel, then uh, then the then the the church comes to the conclusion. Well, then the church replaced Israel because now salvation is through the church. And uh, and then the other way it can be misconstrued is if the if this tr- if the uh, roots of this tree is is uh, Israel is that then well then we're I guess that we're all Jews we're all Israel now and <laughs> right. and then you think that you have to do these type of things so so it can be uh, so when when you look at this as Israel it can lead to some problematic uh, results but the whole thing is anchored in the Abrahamic covenant yes. yep. God's honor is at stake if he doesn't keep that covenant, the covenant again is the land, the physical descendants of Abraham and the nations. If he doesn't keep that covenant, then he's a liar and none of us have hope. Mm-hmm. It's all foolishness. Yeah. Yeah. But, and that being grafted in means that we believe what God said, just like Abraham. Yeah, amen. And grafted into to what, right? Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the van, vine, you are the branches. Grafted into Jesus, being connected to salvation, uh, th- what's, what's most important. Uh, not not connected to a national people into, per se or to a nationality, but but to Jesus himself. Yeah, I, I think the, the key thought here, too, in this passage is humility. Being grafted in should humble us, Amen. really, when Amen. we look at who we are connected to Jesus Christ. In fact, it says we should not boast in our relationship with one another. You say, I see uh, you know, a, a Jewish olive branch. I see a Gentile. Well, I'm better than you guys. Yeah. You know, there's, there's no place for that. In Christ, there's humility yeah. uh, in following in his steps. That should be our, our heart. Right. Amen. Jews shouldn't be gen- uh, jealous of Gentiles, and Gentiles shouldn't be jealous of Jews. When, and God sets that up. I mean, when he chose Israel, if all the Gentiles were jealous, why Israel? Mm-hmm. And if I choose Aaron over you two, you're going to say, why did he choose him? <laughs> why? You know, we have a natural jealousy there. Yeah. I have such a guilty complex, Tom. I always assume someone else should be chosen other than me. So I'm just grateful, I think, at that point, brother. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I know you, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a short break and be right back. Uh, my panel today is uh, Trevor Rubenstein, Aaron Broughton, Matt Fry, and Tom Berkowitz. If you have a question, let me know or a comment, 877-933-2484. Welcome back to the show. It is at least two Jews and a Gentile. We've got uh, time for your questions always. We put them in a mailbag and try to answer them all at once. Here's a question. Uh, Gentlemen, 
Let's see, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. Do Jewish people believe in three gods? That's such a good I was literally listening to a podcast on this one. That's great. Uh, well, I, I, I think, do Jewish or do Christians? Christians? Oh, From a Jewish perspective. Yeah. Yes. Well, that is, that is uh, sometimes the misunderstanding. I would say. Okay. So as the pastor of a Baptist church, okay, in particular, but generally Christians believe in what we call the Trinity. Yeah. Uh, three in one, one and three, the one in the middle died for me. That's a little poem I remember when I was little. <laughs> so we got God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit. These, these three are, are one we believe. Okay. And so, yes, I have been accused myself with my Jewish friends. Yeah. We believe in one God. What are you doing with three? You're polytheist. It's like, okay, how do you answer that? So uh, to my Jewish brothers here, help me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the triune God is, uh, again, uh, really a mystery. Um, even, even the term is just simply defining observations that we see within the scriptures. But clearly we see that the Messiah has to be God. Um, there's, a, there's a context coming from uh, many prophecies about his coming, you know, in uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it's referred to as God with us. In uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 9, verse 6, you know, we see also within the name that's given to God, there are titles on, or to the Messiah, only titles given to God, uh, everlasting father, prince of peace, these type of things. So, uh, so clearly the context from out the scriptures, even going into the Hebrew scriptures, is that Messiah had to be God. And, and part of that's stems from how sacrifice works. And if you sacrifice an animal, and let's look at Yom Kippur, and I've talked about this, I think, uh, on your program previously, Bill, but if you sacrifice an animal on Yom Kippur, and that atones for one year, because this is the idea of the Day of Atonement of Yom Kippur, is there were sacrifices that were offered by the high priest that would atone for Israel for one year so that they physically wouldn't die. And this is animals, right, that are sacrificed there. And so the idea is that if an animal sacrifice can atone for the people so they physically don't die in God's presence for one year, then what kind of sacrifice would be required, not just for Israel, but for all the world, not just for one year, but for everyone past, present, and future, and not just so that they physically don't die, but for their eternal souls. This is the argument that the author of Hebrews makes in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 13. He says, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkle the unclean, sanctify for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? And so the fact that God then comes and dwells in human flesh, uh, yet uh, there's, there's, and yet is still God in heaven, it's not, necess- it's not that... Uh, it's not that we have multiple gods. He's one God that reveals himself in three unique individuals. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, I was listening to a friend of mine who's a, one of the premier messianic scholars in the world, and he was on his radio show interviewing an uh, Orthodox rabbi, and the rabbi asked him to explain the Trinity to him. He did. He said, you know, I've interviewed a lot of Christians, and here's what it comes down to. If I ask 10 Christian pastors, and that's what I've done, I've got eight different definitions <laughs> of what the Trinity is. You guys have to get your act together. 
And some of this, I think, comes down to the distinction between a person and a being, right? Those are categories that are really important. And so when we talk about the triunity or the complex unity, as I think Michael Brown puts it, right. of God, right, we're, we're talking in terms of we believe that there is one creator being the God of Israel who exists eternally in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you're right, Trevor, that this is not, you know, the word uh, Trinity does not exist, right, within the the scriptures itself. This is a theological term that we use to describe uh, something that we're observing. So a a passage that comes up to mind uh, is this, is that uh, when Jesus is talking in, in John 10, he, sa- he says this, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand, you know, referring to God, I and the father are one. Now, certainly on one level, this, this is talking about their, their unity in salvation for God's people. But the Greek term for one is neuter, that we are one thing, right? So it's like, okay, who, who is God, the father or the son? And the answer is yes. And so this also extends to who is who is God, the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, and the attestation of Scripture is is yes, right? And so we have three distinct persons. They, they have personalities. They they functionally do different things, right? But they exist as one being by nature. It's interesting. Uh, a number of years ago, decades ago, Menachem Shearson mm-hmm. uh, wrote a paper on the word Echad, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, yeah. the Lord is one. Yeah. And he said Echad is a complex unity. Yeah. And when you're addressing God, he talked about the aspects of the yeah. Holy Spirit being part of that. And and even to to build on that, I you know, sometimes Deuteronomy six is brought up. You know, Shema Israel and I I don't know Shema Israel and I Right here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? But Echad in that context doesn't actually have to do with this idea of like, uh, uh, you might say, mono-unity or yeah. however you want to ter- do that, right? Even even the JPS, the Jewish Publication Society, yeah. translates that as the Lord alone, right? That's an allegiance yeah. text. That, and that word would be Yahid, which is not the term that's used there. But interestingly, yeah, it actually right. is the word that Maimonides uses to describe that because they want to discount the Christian belief system. But mm-hmm. but really, it's just a monotheistic term. I mean, the, the focus of that verse entirely is, is they're in a pagan world and God's right. saying that there's only one God. God. Right. But but even uh, in, in addressing this issue with uh, with Muslim people that I've done before and with uh, with other Jewish people, there, there's there's ideas of uh, complexities that uh, that we have even within our own being where uh, where there's an understanding that we have flesh and yet that flesh is us. But yes, we have a soul and that soul is us. And, and even a recognition that once that soul departs from the flesh, it's still us. And so uh, and so there is complexity, uh, it, I think, just in, in beings yeah. in general. Um and so why should God be less complicated than right. anything else that we see? All right, Matt, I'm looking your direction right now. But oh, great. Because you pastor um, a Messianic congregation. Did I say that correctly? Yeah, I, I right. Messianic church maybe. Messianic church. Yeah. All right, so if I come to your church, yeah. am I going to have to know Hebrew to understand what's going on? <laughs> no, I, I absolutely not. I've, I've been studying for months. <laughs> I, when are you going to come, Aaron? When are you going to come visit? <laughs> Uh, no, no, you don't. I, I, one of the things that is a value to us uh, as a church uh, is that we would be culturally sensitive and culturally aware. And the reality is, is we're trying to create a space. That, or actually, our mission is cultivating a family of Jews and Gentiles in Messiah Jesus. And so my wife isn't Jewish. And so one of the ways that I had of a litmus test is if she shows up and she's lost, then I have failed 
uh, as a pastor oh, of that, that community. And so we try and be as accessible as we can. Yes, we do some things in Hebrew and some things reflect uh, Jewish liturgy. But the reality is, is we try and communicate it in a way that no matter who you are, you can walk in uh, and you can be edified. If you're Jewish, you realize, hey, there's something familiar to me in my heritage. If you're non-Jewish, we're doing it so that you can be grounded in that heritage that is yours by faith, mm-hmm. Jesus. I never want any of the listeners to feel like something just went over their head. Right. And when you guys have periodically broken out into a, a Hebrew expression, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it means. So um, sometimes it would be really helpful to just say again what it means. Yeah. Um, yeah. We should so. have translation checks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, thank you once again for uh, the show and, and being part of this. This is uh, really fun for me, and I hope you guys are having fun doing this. It's Absolutely. been a blast for yep. me. Yeah, oh, thank good. you. That's, that's really good to know. That is all the time we have for uh, this uh, episode of uh, At Least Two Jews and a Gentile. And if you have questions or comments uh, for the guys to answer, let me know what they are. You can send them over on the text line at 877-933-2484. Or you can email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. And next time we gather, we'll uh, try to put all the questions together and and answer them one after the other. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the show. Thank you for caring about Faith Radio. Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for caring about us. Uh, my panel today has been uh, Trevor, Trevor Rubenstein, Aaron Broughton, Matt Fry, and Tom Berkowitz. Have a great night, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.